ಓಮಜ್ಞಾನತಿಮಿರಂದಸ್ಯಾಜ್ಞಾನಂಜನಾಶಲಕಾ ಚಕ್ಷುರ್ಮಿತಿಮಲಾಯತಕ್ಷೋಧಾರ್ಮಪಾಲೋಷ್ಣಾಭೂತಾರೋ ಶ್ರೀಮದ್ ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತೆ ಕೀ ಜಾಯ್ ಶ್ರೀ ಶ್ರೀ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ಅರ್ಜುನ್ ಕೀ ಜಾಯ್ಮಾನಂದಿ ಸೊ ದಿ ಪ್ರೋಗ್ರಾಮ್ ಟು ನೈಟ್ ಐ ವಾಂಟೆಡ್ ಟು ಡಿಸೈನ್ ಅ ಲೋಲ್ ಬಟ್ ಡಿಫ್ರೆಂಟ್ಲಿ ದೆನ್ ಪ್ರಾಪ್ಸ್ ಸಮ್ ಆಫ್ ದ ಪ್ರೋಗ್ರಾಮ್ಸ್ ದಟ್ ಸಮ್ ಆಫ್ ಯು ಹವ್ ಅಟೆಂಡೆಡ್ ದಟ್ ಐ ಹವ್ ಕಂಡಕ್ಟೆಡ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಪಾಸ್ಟ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದ ಡಿಫ್ರೆನ್ಸ್ ಇಸ್ ದಟ್ ಐ ವುಡ್ ಲೈಕ್ ಟು ಮೇಕ್ ದಿಸ್ ಪ್ರೋಗ್ರಾಮ್ ವಿಚ್ ಇಸ್ ಗೋಯಿಂಗ್ ಟು ಬಿ ಅ ರಿಕರಿಂಗ್ ಪ್ರೋಗ್ರಾಮ್ ವನ್ಸ್ ಅ ಮಂತ್ ಇನ್ ಪ್ರಾಪ್ಸ್ ಇಟ್ ವಿಲ್ ಎಕ್ಸ್ಪ್ಯಾಂಡ್ ಟ್ವೈಸ್ ಅ ಮಂತ್ ಇಸ್ ಪಾಸಿಬಲ್ a recurring program in which i speak and we're going to begin with bhagavad gita and particularly from my forthcoming edition that's uh, at the press more or less almost and what i want the program to be as i envision it in terms of it being successful is that uh, those who participate in it will carry with them something that they will continue to think about until the next meeting and in order to help see that that goes on i'm going to give all of you some assignments to read up on and um i think this will help you to become a little bit more absorbed and connected with this program and you'll get a lot out of it now unfortunately the key edition i want to speak from is isn't published so i can't give you all a copy to read along with me i'm going to begin tonight by reading from the introduction i'm going to read the introduction and basically i'm going to comment it on it for the first class and then we'll follow that by in the next session discussing chapter 1 and so one of the things that i want you to do all of you who are continue to come to the program is to read chapter 1 and because it's not in print i will have someone email you the chapter most of you have email those of you that don't you can let us know and we'll make another arrangement and then uh, you'll be prepared you may have some questions and and what not to start with and then we'll go through the chapter otherwise tonight reading from the introduction i'm going to also suggest other things that you should read and if you don't have access to that then let us know and we'll try to also make that available to you on email so as our host ramadas spoke about it on the uh, invitation that most of you who came tonight got it's uh, as he put it a, a kind of a workshop which is a popular term and um it's a good term and it's a good uh system that people have worked out for conveying ideas in our times and absorbing people in a particular discipline whatever it may be so bhagavad gita is an enormous uh, discipline to uh, what's taught here the discipline to become acquainted with i am i could tell you personally i'm absolutely fascinated by the bhagavad gita and this is really a result of writing this commentary i never did justice to the bhagavad gita in all my reading i felt in comparison to the other shastras that i paid attention to i mean i read shila prabhupada's edition a number of times maybe 10 times but the bhagavatam i read many more times and chaitanya charitamrita many more times and that had something to do with why i got involved in this project of writing an edition of the bhagavad gita as i mentioned in the preface which i'm not going to read to you tonight the first thing that prabhupada ever said to me were a couple of verses from the bhagavad gita other than your name is jupari das do you know the regulative principles <laughs> and chant 16 rounds <laughs> that came on a morning walk in los angeles the first time i got to go on the morning walk with prabhupada and as we had i tell the story in the preface it's an interesting story but to cut to the end of it prabhupada was speaking about the importance of disseminating the gaudiya ideas and he was imploring all of us to preach and to write he said and then one of my gabbas on the walk said well, prabhupada i think it's good enough for us just to distribute your books you've written the books we'll just distribute them you write them and prabhupada said no you don't understand this is the parampara system i'm in the parampara system and and then um someone i think cut him off and said 
Prabhupada Tripurari-das is here, and he's distributing your books, and Prabhupada turned to me and said, yes, Sarva-dharman prajajamamikam saranam braja, this famous conclusive verse of Bhagavad Gita in the 18th chapter, surrender everything to me. And then he said, nachatasman manusyeshu, kastin me prikritamaha. He said, the one who's doing this is very dear to me. No one in the world is, is more dear who's explaining the Bhagavad Gita to the devotees. And so I... As I say, I was thinking about how I hadn't done justice to the Bhagavad Gita and what to do about it, and that conversation came to my mind. And of course, these days, these things are all recorded, so I went into the database and I found that conversation. And sure enough, Prabhupada had said those things to me, and I studied it, and, and I thought, well, I should write something on the Bhagavad Gita, because as it's come to pass, my service has been to write about Gaudi Vaishnavism in a way that is uh, contemporary, and in a way also that I feel is helps... This is the kind of response I get many devotees to think about the subject of Gaudiya Vaishnavism in ways perhaps they haven't thought about it before, and it's helpful to them. So I thought I'd do something with the Bhagavad Gita, and I thought I'd just do some something, maybe show how it flows together from verse to verse and chapter to chapter. And this was just after I'd written Aesthetic Vedanta, which some of you may have read, which was a major undertaking. And after I write one of these books, then I, I think... <laughs> Maybe I'll just write a real short one. and <laughs> So that's how I was thinking of the Bhagavad Gita. Well, it, it, as it turned out, it took me a couple of years. <laughs> it turned into an enormous project because I couldn't be satisfied as I tried to make a simple presentation because the fact of the matter is the text is not simple. It's so deep and so vast, and it, it speaks on so many levels that as I read and studied and looked at different commentaries and so forth, I became overwhelmed at the... Uh, I realized what is often said by many people that I really had never realized before. Everything is there in the Bhagavad Gita. And I say this to you tonight after having written a commentary on this and studied it for two years, day and night. And as I sit here beginning to give a, a workshop on the Bhagavad Gita, I feel like I just, there's no way that I have done justice to it in what I've written and no way that I can do justice to commenting on what's been written in the course of these sessions. It's absolutely a wonderful book with universal application for all times and all circumstances. So with that, let me read a little. It's supposed to be out in April. These things take a long time. I actually finished writing it last year at this time, and on, I'd wait to Acharya's appearance day, which is probably coming up shortly. And then since then, of course, it's gone to editors, and and then they give it back to me, and then I comment on it and accept some of their comments and reject some other ones and fight with them over it and so forth. And well, it's taken a while. But when it is out, we'll be sure to give you all a copy. What I want to do again simply is just read from this and comment where I get the inspiration to do so. So please try pay attention. Introduction. Yet another edition of the Bhagavad Gita and yet another accompanying introduction that pains to justify it. Let us deal with this world-weary sigh by doing nothing more than quoting the concluding words of Sanjaya, the Gita's narrator. O King, recalling again and again this wonderful and sacred conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, I am thrilled at every moment. New insights into this unfathomable divine conversation are always welcome. If you're a little familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, it's almost bewildering how someone could think that, oh, another edition, what do we need that for? Whether it be in the world or in general or in the devotional sector. As I began in my introduction to this introduction, it's fast and speaks to us on many, many levels. There's never enough that one can say about it. And this uh, verse from Sanjayas comes at this in the 18th chapter, the 76th verse. There's about five verses there where... Sanjaya concludes, wraps up the Bhagavad Gita with a glorification of the, of the text or of the discourse between Krishna and Arjuna. And in this verse that I've cited, in another verse there also, he uses the word adbhutam, wonder, chamatkar, is the basis, really, of aesthetic rapture, that ideal of rasananda that Rupa Goswami has introduced us to. He was the main course mouthpiece for Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in terms of what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was really about. Therefore we pray what? Sri Chaitanya Mano Bishtam Stapitam Yena Bhutale Swayam Rupa Padam Padati Swapadanti Kam 
what he knew, you know, that Rupa Goswami Prabhu shocked Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. When in the Rati Yatra, Mahaprabhu began to sing a love song, like a cinema song, and no one knew what was on his mind, but Rupa Goswami could understand. And he wrote his own verse, which explained the inner significance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's song. And he tacked it on the door of his hut. In those days, that was like putting it in the headlines of the Chronicle. And when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to his place, he saw that, he grabbed it and tore it and gave him a push. How could you write such a thing? How is it possible that you could know such a thing? And of course, it was concluded that he must have gotten some mercy of Srup Dhamma who knew these things. And thus, Rupa Goswami became the real principal spokesperson for what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was all about in terms of the farthest reach of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And that, in a general sense, that farthest reach is this ideal of aesthetic rapture, Rasananda, is far, far distant in one sense from where we are in our lives as sadhakas, practitioners, but it's very near to us as well, inasmuch as the ultimate experience of Rasananda is taught by Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasthi Thakur to be dormant in our heart, number one, so it's close to us in that sense, although we may not be aware of that or pay much attention to it. or So it's there in our heart, one, and two, the person has come to tell us about it. Although we're not aware of it, someone has, knows about it and has come to tell us about it. And that is our Gurudev. My godbrother, Vishnu John Swami, used to say something that, that I always remember that was very charming. He said, The distance we have gone thus far is far greater than that which we have yet to traverse, having met our Gurudev. And Gurudev speaks to us just like that. Therefore, you had these what would appear to be exaggerated statements of Prabhupada or of any of our gurus that they make about us. Remember once in Los Angeles, Brahmananda Maharaj started to dance, a one-two kind of a step where he would kind of go like this and lean forward and stretch his arm out. Others started doing it, and Prabhupada saw it. And Prabhupada, of course, he was sitting right there, and he commented, Oh, I, I saw that Brahmananda had the bhav. <laughs> and, and then he said, but then I realized it was just a concoction. <laughs> Anubhav is a symptom, of course, of the, of the inner bhav. But anyway, Prabhupada was generous. He said very generous things about me, and I can tell you frankly, they were very, very generous. But in a sense, they're accurate also, those generous statements that these great souls make about us, because they can see our potential. Two things we should experience in the presence of a great personality. One, we should feel a little foolish. I don't mean to say that we should try to feel foolish, but we probably will feel like we don't know that much, and we're in the presence of somebody that's on a different level from us. We should feel foolish, and it also means we will feel our conditioning, but we also feel a second thing, and that is our potential. So both things are experienced in the company of a great person. My limitations, my conditioning, I should become aware of that side and my potential, what I can be. Without being aware of our conditioning, then we don't have the proper tools to deal with that such that we can realize our potential. Great souls are generous in one sense, but they're not really exaggerating. They're living in a different space. What is a few lifetimes? This one lifetime for us. When we're young, of course, one year is a long time. When we get a little older, we think in terms of five years or ten years. But great souls are thinking in terms of reality. What is the day? What is the night? For someone who is living in eternity. And when we come in touch with an agent of eternity, we're at that space where time meets eternity. And we're not far from where they are. So when they speak about us and our potential and so forth in generous ways, it's not as maybe as generous as it seems. It, it may be closer to the reality. Our conditioning is very, very shallow. Sridhar Maharaj used to say, like mushrooms. What does it mean? No roots. We're rooted in something else. We are the very ground that we're trying to stand on and get balance. And we want to go to that ground and underground. That is uh, the heights, so to speak, the depth that Rupa Goswami and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's tradition speaks about. And that highest depth of experience, farthest reach of spiritual experience, 
that is described by Krishna Skaviraj Goswami and all the aestheticians who spoke about the secular theory of Rasananda that Rupa Goswami used as a framework to explain the Upanishads, actually. The statement of Tritakri Upanishad. The term Adbhuta, Chamatkar, that's used in these two verses of Sanjay at the end of Bhagavad Gita, wonder. This forms the basis of that full experience of Rasananda. Wonder. He says, my hairs are standing on end in, in wonder, having heard this conversation. He's experiencing sattvika bhavas, transformations of ecstasy, having witnessed, as he did from a distance mystically, and having heard Bhagavad Gita. So our study of Bhagavad Gita will be complete. We will be a graduated student when we have this kind of experience, thrilled at every moment. Now, to begin with, that may not be our experience. But if we can understand that it's the experience of some persons in the tradition, then we can conjecture that it's potentially our experience as well. So we should study with this in mind. We should read with this in mind. We have to understand that reading, writing, explaining and all, whether it be, even if it be Gaudiya Vaishnava literature, any spiritual literature, it can be nothing more than an intellectual exercise. We want to avoid that by reading, hearing, in a particular way, with a view to make progress, to make advancement in spiritual life, to listen to the text and what it says to me. And we will read the text, and if we really require some integrity, we have to have the integrity to identify, to recognize, I'm ignoring this part because it really pertains to me. I'm just kind of skipping through this part. We have to catch ourselves there and listen to that part. So I want to encourage you all to make this a spiritual exercise, as it is for me in speaking about it not an intellectual exercise, so that we can all one day realize and experience what Sanjaya has experienced, which justifies, as I say here in the introduction, writing another edition, because there's just not enough that we can say about this wonderful sacred conversation between Krishna and Arjun. The Song of God has been studied for centuries, lending itself to interpretations of all kinds, academic, ecological, psychological, sociological, political, and popular. Though its wisdom has been identified with the perennial philosophy, it speaks on many levels to its varied congregation, primarily about life's ultimate necessity, enlightened love of God. I used to think that various editions of Bhagavad Gita that speak about Bhagavad Gita with a political interpretation, a Gandhian for example, edition of the Bhagavad Gita, or a sociological one, or an ecological one. I used to think that these were unbonafide from a doctrinal point of view of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And in one sense, they are, but in another sense, they're not, in as much as they speak to us about the depth of Bhagavad Gita, how it can actually apply on so many levels, and persons steeped in particular disciplines, very disciplines, have consistently come to this one discipline, or this one conversation of Bhagavad Gita, to draw from it, to help them in their own discipline, or to explain it, uh, that discipline, better. So, this is the very position of Krishna, Jejatamam Prapadhyantetam Satagavajamiham. He says in the fourth chapter, 11th verse, as people approach me, so I reciprocate accordingly. So in time, I've come to appreciate all the different editions from all the different angles of vision and um, how they, in a sense, really speak to us about this verse I just quoted from the fourth chapter. Krishna says, as people approach me, I reciprocate accordingly. And we can appreciate Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's words have such depth that so many disciplines are able to go to Bhagavad Gita and draw something from it for their own tradition. And of course, it is central, as we'll hear further, to our tradition. So we do have, in a sense, the right to say that we have the highest understanding of the Bhagavad Gita, the deepest understanding of Bhagavad Gita, in a simplistic way, in as much as the spiritual is, is on another level of than sociological or psychological or ecological. And furthermore, because the real essence of the Bhagavad Gita is to become a devotee of Krishna, to become a lover, and we're all involved in culturing that kind of love. And it's said that to love me is to know me. It used to be an old song like that. Or to know me is to love me, I think it went. So 
So those who love Krishna, then they maybe know what he was really saying here on the highest level, although we speak on many levels. And this really is the particular angle that I've taken for explaining the Bhagavad Gita from the point of view of knowing Krishna, knowing Krishna, why he was there at Kurukshetra at that time, what was the background, and so on. I'll read a little bit more, and this will come out in the introduction. Krishna's speech is said to be vavaduka, which means that it is ambrosial and pleasing to the ears. It is also said that he is satyavak, because his words never prove to be false. In his conversation with Arjuna in Bhagavad Gita, these two qualities related to his speech are apparent. It is no wonder that his words have been immortalized in human society where he descends to express himself in the fullness of love. There's a lot in this paragraph, actually. Krishna's speech is said to be Vavaduk. Actually, there are four qualities to Krishna's speech. I've only mentioned two of them here. He has wonderful knowledge of other languages. Now, of course, I'm referring to Bhakti Rasamri to Sindhu, the seminal book of Rupa Goswami about devotion. Prabhupada wrote a summary study of this called Nectar of Devotion. Here's your first reading assignment, other than chapter one. I want you to read the section in Nectar Devotion describing Krishna's qualities. In Nectar Devotion, this covers two chapters. And I want you to understand why that is being brought up. Why Krishna's qualities are being described in Nectar Devotion and where they're being described in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So that you can better get a kind of a handle on Nectar of Devotion, a book that many of my god brothers and god sisters have told me. In fact, an older god brother of mine who was recently visiting with me told me, you know, I never read the last part. The last part means where he's talking about all those bhavas, anubhavas, sattvika bhavas, and vibhav, and vishayalambana, ashrayalambana, and so many terms. This is not a section to ignore. A little discussion about it may be helpful in terms of us our being able to penetrate better and get some context to the description of Krishna's qualities. Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, of course, is Sindhu means ocean, so Rupa Goswami has used the metaphor of an ocean for his book. An ocean has waves, so this ocean has four divisions, and then there are waves within each division. So each division, we have the eastern division, and then clockwise, he goes from the eastern division to the southern division, to the western division, the northern division, and of course within each division then there are so many waves. Eastern division gives first wave is the generic quality of bhakti. What is the nature of bhakti? What kind of bhakti are we going to talk about? He's going to talk about ahaitaki bhakti, the bhakti of the bhagavat, pure bhakti, unalloyed bhakti, shuddha bhakti, not mixed bhakti, bhakti mixed with karma or jnana or yoga or so forth. So he talks about the generic nature of this bhakti, he defines it, explains it, and then he begins to talk about different divisions within bhakti. Sadhana bhakti, the bhakti of practice as a practitioner, and inside of that, there are two divisions, vaidhi bhakti, rag bhakti, these things are all explained in the second wave of the eastern division. And then he speaks about bhava bhakti in the third wave, and prema bhakti. Then we come to the southern division, and first wave. After the first Eastern Division, Rupa Goswami is to find bhakti, and he's explained the divisions of bhakti, bhakti in practice, bhakti in ecstasy, bhakti in love of God. And that love of God is about, is that rasananda, that depth that I was talking about of spirituality that Rupa Goswami has told us Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is about and has come to give. So in the Western Division, Rupa Goswami begins to talk about that experience of rasa, that is the result of prema bhakti. And he explains that there are different spiritual, emotional elements that when they're put together in the right way, that's what we call rasa. So he wants to help us to understand that, therefore he explains each of these different divisions, the first of which is vibhav. Vibhav means a determinant, a cause, that which brings something out. Just like in your heart you have love for your daughter, and if you happen to come to your house and your daughter's there unexpectedly, and then when you open the door and you see her shoes, just seeing the shoes, you get excited. The shoes are the daughter. The love is already there, but this excites it, brings it out, it causes it in that sense. So this is the first wave called Vibhav. And the Vibhav is, has two divisions. 
One is the Alambanavibhav, and that has two divisions, Nishaya and Ashray. And then there's the Udipana Vibhav. And these things are not as complicated as they sound. And for your recommended reading, along with this, it would be useful to read the first chapter of Aesthetic Vedanta, Truth and Beauty, again. That'll be helpful. These things are explained there at some length. The Vibhav, Vishaya Lambana, Ashraya Lambana. What this means is that Vishaya means object. So what we're talking about is love. There has to be an object of love. So Krishna is the object of love, of the rasa of bhakti. Bhakti rasa Marita Sindhu is about bhakti rasa, one rasa, but it has different flavors. Shanta, Dasya, Sakya, Atsalya, Madhurya, and combinations of the two, overlapping divisions, and so many. But it's all one, bhakti rasa. So bhakti rasa means the object of bhakti rasa, the love of bhakti rasa, its object is Krishna. Of course, Krishna is the perfect object of love, and there's our whole theology why, and so many good reasons are given, and so forth. And this is the beginning of it, where he begins to describe the qualities of Krishna. So, Vishayalambana, the object of love, whom we direct our loving propensity towards, and that object is Krishna, and he has different qualities. So the qualities are part of this Vishayalambana, and much as the qualities in a person are one and the same, and also those qualities, when they're talked about in and of themselves, rather than as being one with Krishna. It's kind of hard, but remember, our philosophy is one and different at the same time. So the qualities are the person and different from the person. When we talk about them different from the person, then they're classified as udipana. It means kind of like stimulus. Like I said, like seeing the shoes, hearing about this quality of Krishna. We may be excited in a particular way, uh, stimulate our love. So these qualities that are the subject of the first chapter there, are vibhav either as a deepana stimulant or as, as vishayalambana, the object of love, being the qualities of that person who is the object of love. The third thing is the ashrayalambana, means the devotee. So love has to have an object, love has to have a the, the shelter of that love, who possesses that love, and the object to which we direct that love. So the object we direct the love to is Krishna, and we are the shelter of the love. So therefore devotees great devotees who have that love of Krishna, they're called vibhav, a stimulant or an excitant or a cause of, of rasananda, because they're the embodiment of that, they possess that, they're the ashray, ashray means shelter, that love has become sheltered in them. Radharani is the shelter of the Mahabhav, Mahabhav Surupini, Krishna's friend, Subal Sridham, they, they're the shelter of that love eternally. Krishna said in Chiprema, Sadyukabhanai Shavanadi Sudhachite Koreyudai, Nitya Siddha Krishna Prema, Sadyukabhanai, it's Krishna Prem, this love of Krishna is eternal. It's not cause. It's not a product of the world. Sadhikabunai. It's not a product of anything. It's eternally existing in these associates. It may also be eternally existing, a spark of it in your heart, but we can't turn that spark into the fire unless we're in touch with the fire itself. Practically, it's going out. When we get in touch with the fire, then it, it can turn into a fire. So therefore, these devotees, Ashrayalambana Vibhav, they are also, they are the shelter of that love, that is our objective, that we want to attain. They embody it, they exemplify it. Their company, that's a stimulus, that's a cause, that love coming out in us, as is the, the object of our love, Krishna himself, and everything related to him. And the things related to him, his different qualities, his paraphernalia, and so forth, all these things are discussed in this division under Vibhav. They're also relative to the particular kind of love that we develop. So if we develop in terms of friendly love for Krishna, then that buffalo horn of his may affect us in a particular way when we hear about it or hear it or his stick. Gopis will be attracted by other qualities. So as you see in this section, this is what Rupa Goswami is explaining. And 64 qualities of Krishna are given. So you should read over those 64 qualities. And Rupa Goswami has given the qualities and then he's given an example from the scripture of those qualities. This is important for developing love for Krishna. Why we're talking about this here in the Bhagavad Gita is because the whole thrust of this particular edition of Bhagavad Gita in one sense is the more we know about Krishna, the more we're going to love Krishna and the more we're going to be able to understand what he's talking about. This is our practical experience. If you know me very closely, when I say something, you may know what I'm talking about much more than anybody else in the room, even though we're all speaking the same language. To love Krishna is to know Krishna. 
We should read Bhagavad Gita to develop love for Krishna. Many editions of Bhagavad Gita, as I said, they're all beautiful and valuable in some respect. We appreciate them. We offer our respect to anybody who touches Bhagavad Gita. But those who are lovers of Krishna, we can find out best about what Krishna is saying, the farthest reach of what he has to say from them. Rupa Goswami is such a person that we're under his shelter, the shelter of his Guru Parampara. So qualities of Krishna and in relation to speech, as I said, he can speak wonderful languages, all languages. He can speak, Rupa Goswami says, the language of Sanskrit, the language of the gods. To be honest with you, today, in today's world, I think it would be a wonder for anyone to meet someone who could speak fluently Sanskrit, such a sophisticated and refined language. I certainly can't speak it fluently, and it would be fascinating to meet someone who, who could. But you have met people who speak fluent Sanskrit. I met one man who, yeah, I've met people who talk to me in conversational Sanskrit, yeah, in Himalayas once and once in Vrindavan also. But it's a very sophisticated language, but the, and Krishna speaks it, and I don't think you can find a more sophisticated language. It's said that all of the sounds that possibly can be made with the palate are employed in the utterance of Sanskrit language. But not only could he speak Sanskrit, Rupa Goswami says, he also spoke to the cows in their language, and the buffaloes, and the birds, and the bees. He knew all their language, therefore he's a wonderful linguist, it means. <laughs> and then, of course, Rupa Goswami gives examples. From this literature it is said here, he spoke this. To the cows, he said that. To the birds, and this is Krishna. Believe it or not, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. And I'm going to bring this up for some people do. Some people, like Rupa Goswami, and they believe this. They experience this on some level. They're experiencing this person, Krishna. <laughs> That's possible. Now you think about it. You may say, I don't know, believe in Krishna. There's no history to prove that. You can't go there and find Kurukshetra. Where are the bodies and <laughs> this kind of thing? It doesn't really matter. Some people have met him, experienced him, and this is what they say he's like, and they've showed a method that you can do that. Now you just hear about him. Do you want to meet a person who can speak the language of the gods and the language of buffaloes and cows at the same time? <laughs> who wouldn't? Priyamvad, another of his qualities of speech. He can speak very dearly. He can, when he was, after he chastised Kaliya, Kaliya was a serpent who polluted the lake of the Jamuna. And the day that Krishna chastised him, of course, was one of the days that Balaram stayed home. So he was free. Balaram is a Dauji, I mean the elder brother. So his duty is always to protect Krishna. Mother Yasoda will not let Krishna go into the forest without telling Balaram repeatedly, again and again and again. Now you watch over him. You take care of him. You be careful. So that day Balaram stayed home. Krishna's out free. That Kaliya was known. He's polluting that section. But under Mother Yasoda's guidance, Balaram would not let him go over there. It was a dangerous place. Would any mother let their child go to a dangerous place? But would any child not want to go there? <laughs> so, without that harness of Balaram's watchful eye, Krishna ran to the Jumuna and the lake of Kali and chastised him. It was actually Balaram's birthday. For that occasion, he stayed back. But then, of course, the news spread all over the Vrindavan by inauspicious signs that there's some problem. And it was lucky that Balaram was home because had he not been there to steady the emotion, trauma of Jasoda, Rohini, and Nanda Maharaj and others, they knew, they saw the signs, and they couldn't see inauspicious signs without worrying about their beloved Krishna, and that those signs were in relation to something that he was involved in. Balaram was able to steady them by his words, his confidence. And he himself, of course, knew everything was all right, but still he also internally worried, but he was able to show externally a face of courage. And they went all to the banks of the Jamuna, and there Krishna danced on the heads of Kaliya. He actually was giving a preview of his dancing capacity to the gopis, preview for Rasalila. They got a glimpse. At that time, their love had not awakened. This is, the, of course, the Prakat Leela of Krishna. It means the manifest Leela of Krishna on earth. And their love had not manifest in terms of Parakhi above because of their age. But they were, of course, destined for that. And they, so he danced for them. Therefore, it's described like a rasa dance. Rasa dance is a classical type of dance in Indian art and music and dance and so forth. So he did it on Kaliya's heads. And how fortunate Kaliya was, thought the Nagapatnis, the wives of that serpent. Now... How fortunate they thought he was 
tells us something about Krishna's quality of speech, Priyamvad, because Krishna, after chastising Kaliya, he talked to all those ladies. And he talked to them in such a way, after beating their husband. Can you imagine? Someone comes into your house and beats your husband to a pulp. And you're his wife. And he turns to you and says, talks to you in such a way that just charms your heart. And you think, my husband was lucky to be beaten by you. <laughs> he was a fortunate person. <laughs> How lucky you are. This fellow beat you. Pay obeisances to him. This is Krishna's Priyambad. This kind of quality of speech he has. And Vabaduk, as I mentioned here, wonderful speech about it. Uddhava said, Krishna's speech is wonderful. He doesn't talk long when he talks, but what he says is full of meaning. And his words are powerful enough to solve all the problems of the whole world. You see, if we hear these kind of things, and these are not light-headed people, who's Uddhava? Uddhava was Krishna's friend in Dwaraka, but he was an extremely learned person. He was the most learned pundit, so learned. He's making this statement. We should then be moved by this. These words, and we're going to read his words in Bhagavad Gita, they have the power to solve all the problems of life, every problem. See, if we enter this with this kind of confidence, this kind of shraddha, then we may... We will find it's fact all problems are being solved by hearing this conversation between Krishna and Arjuna. Krishna's quality of speech called Babaduk here mentioned. An example of that is found in Govardhan Lila. How Krishna spoke to Nanda Maharaj as just a young lad. Krishna had benedicted the wives of the Brahmanas. You may know this chapter of Srimad Bhagavatam. And he stayed in that place for the night instead of going back home. And apparently Nanda Maharaj was there as well, so... He had a good reason to, on business, Nandamarsh was, with regard to the Indriyagya, making arrangements with other elderly men and so forth. So Krishna approached him and said, what's going on with all this? I've seen this happen every year, and uh, what's it all about? And if you study that, this is auxiliary, it's not required, but it's a good idea. You can read it in the Krishna book. It's the beginning of the Govardhan Leela, where Krishna speaks. He speaks wonderfully to convince Nanda Maharaj. Inside of his speech is the logic of Nyaya and Sankhya, and so many, from so many angles he's, he's making his case. Ultimately, of course, his case is very simple. He says what? Like, Udasin Ari. Ari means enemy. Udasin means neutral. Udasin Ari Vad Varja. He says, one who is neutral can be rejected as an enemy, but one who is a surit, surido, Atmavat, Uchite. It is said, one who is a friend, a suhir, a well-wisher, is like one's very self. I'm just quoting one of the statements that Krishna made. It's a very nice one. It's a kind of language of love, in a sense. He says, people who love you, who are dear to you, who are your well-wishers, there's nothing to keep from them. So, Nanda Baba, my dear father, you're my well-wisher, we're close. People like this don't keep secrets from one another. But people who are neutral, even, they can be completely rejected. You understand the point? This is the force of love he's talking about. In love, then, there may be persons who oppose. If we love someone and someone is opposed to that person, then we are not kindly disposed towards that fellow. Krishna is taking it to another level. It says, if they're neutral, we reject them. He charmed Nanda Maharaj's heart. Of course, hearing philosophy and wonderful speech from a young lad is always charming anyway. So Vavaduk, Krishna has this quality of speech. That's who we're going to hear from in Bhagavad Gita. And I mentioned Satyabhak, also the fourth quality of his speech. Satyabhak means whatever he says is, is true. Of course, this comes to question at the end of Bhagavad Gita. Krishna promises in the ninth chapter to Arjuna, become my devotee. You'll come to me, I promise you. This is the real conclusion of Bhagavad Gita. It is reiterated again in the eighteenth chapter at the end. He says, I'm going to say it to you once more. There'll be no doubt all doubt removed. Actually, Krishna stops the Bhagavad Gita earlier and says, so now you've heard, make your decision. But he can't stop. He goes on. He can't let Arjuna make the wrong decision. <laughs> the force of his own love for him. He says, become my devotee. Offer your obeisance to me. Think of me. I love you. The ninth chapter, that verse is more about the devotee's love for Krishna. And when it's repeated in the 18th chapter, it's more about Krishna's love for the devotee. As Guru Maharaj used to say, we have a book, he said, the book, we have the book, Search for Sri Krishna. But we need a book about Krishna's search for the devotee, loving search for the lost servant. Krishna's reaching for Arjuna's heart there. And Arjuna has a slight reservation, because what? 
Krishna is from Mathura, and it's said that people from Mathura can't be trusted. You know that Vasudeva was a great and noble person, father of Krishna, so much so that that evil Kamsa felt assured, not from any of the philosophy that Vasudeva gave, when he said you shouldn't kill Devaki, for this reason, for that reason, this will happen to you, that could happen, after all, we're not these bodies, and so this just went right past him. But when Vasudeva said, well, look, I'll tell you what, I promise you, I give you my word, every child that's born, I'll deliver to you, you can kill the child, just spare her life. You know, Vasudeva made a promise. That's good. That'll work. He, this guy will never break his promise. What did he do? When Krishna was born, broke his promise. <laughs> People from Mathura, you can't trust them. So Arjuna may have wondered, how can I trust him? He's saying this, but how can I trust him? Of course, Baldi gives a nice answer. He says, it's true, I mean, Krishna's a little tricky like that, and the people of Mathura are like that. But one thing you should know is that they never deceive those whom they love. They may deceive others, but never the ones they love. And of course, Krishna never breaks his promise to his devotees. So he's Satyavak. In Magira Samri Dasindu Rupa Goswami, cites an example. He says, Krishna told Kunti, it doesn't matter, hell or high water, if the sun turns cold and the moon turns hot. I'll return your five sons from this battle, alive, without a bruise. And he did so. Actually, she made the statement, I think. Krishna is good for his word. It doesn't matter if the sun turns hot or cold. The whole world could change, turn upside down. But Krishna, his promise is good. And he gives his promise to all of us in Bhagavad Gita. So as I say, if we know who he is, something about him, then maybe we, can, we will consider his promise Take it a little more seriously. There's great hope for us through the Bhagavad Gita. Great hope for us. We can hardly imagine what kind of potential, what kind of, what type of life is possible for us. Now, it may seem arduous, difficult to go, but this is the real secret of the Bhagavad Gita. Behind all this, so many things are discussed. There's a lot of knowledge, things to learn, and introspection, integrity. Our integrity is called upon and so forth. It's difficult, but the background of the whole thing is to try it. Try for it. And I, it's Krishna speaking, I love you, I'll help you, depend on me. And without that, it's a fact. And that's the glory of bhakti. Without the generosity of bhakti, forget it. All the different disciplines in Bhagavad Gita that are mentioned, especially in our times, we have no hope, no hope whatsoever. We should come to that conclusion. We have no hope. Karma yoga, jnana yoga, dhyana, anything. But because of the generosity of bhakti, we have great hope. And whatever is possible through those various disciplines will be accomplished within the context of the culture of bhakti as well. Krishna's speech, okay? Then, although some devotees have tried to establish the historicity of Krishna's appearance 5,000 years ago, as well as the events that are said to have taken place at that time, such as the Gita's Kurukshetra War, they have not made much progress in documenting this. Where they have succeeded is in recording their own extraordinary mystical experiences of Krishna and the theological and philosophical ramifications of these experiences are a spiritual reality that human society must reckon with. Now this is a good point because it would be difficult to convince someone that 5,000 years ago 640 million people were killed at Kurukshetra and it was done in 18 days and there's no evidence, archaeological evidence of it uh, and the so-called historical evidence is in a book called the Mahabharata, which isn't even by academic standards considered a history book. The whole existence of Krishna, for that matter. Now, Prabhupada wanted us, in many respects, to prove it. But I think what Prabhupada really wanted was to get people to love Krishna. So there may be a way that we don't have to go against the grain. And if you want to go into the house and the door is locked in the front, then if you really want to get in, there are windows, back doors, chimneys other ways to get in. The object is to get inside. If we want to get inside other person's hearts about Krishna, about that which is in our heart and is wonderful, and share it with them, and we have to assess what obstacles are there and then chart our course accordingly. So I don't want to discourage anyone who is bent on trying to prove historically that Krishna was personally, physically, whatever that means, uh, here, 
on earth in a particular place at a particular time and, and so forth. That's good, well and good. I think it's a difficult argument to make in terms of convincing anyone, educated people in our society. My idea is that we don't have to bother with it. As I said earlier, Krishna is a reality. And for whom? And what is the character of those people? The Rupa Goswamis, the Prabhupads, and our great saints and sadhus. They're preoccupied with him day and night. With the moving of his eyebrows, they're writing books about how he blinks. So they're having some experience. And the experience is translating out in a particular way in terms of their character and behavior and their qualities and so forth. And they're wonderful. So it is a living reality, and we can contact that reality of Krishna by the methodology they've given bhakti. That should suffice. Krishna represents the love life of the Absolute, while Buddha taught wisdom leading to the cessation of suffering and Christ's salvation through love. Krishna is God in love, living in eternity with his devotees, who embody five basic types of love. Devotees of Krishna love him passively, Shantarasa, as servitors, Dasyarasa, as friends, Sakirasa, as well-wishers, Vatsalyarasa, and as lovers, Madhurdhyarasa. These five basic expressions of devotional love, Bhaktirasa, may also overlap, and each has its own subdivisions. But we mentioned this earlier, and this is, of course, the Western division of Bhaktivedanta Sindhu. After Rupa Goswami describes all the elemental constituents of the experience of rasa, the vibhavs, which I discussed at some length, and then the anubhavs, sattvika bhavs, vyabhichari bhavs. If you want to read extra, you can read about these things in Bhaktivedanta Sindhu or Nectar of Devotion. These are all the different elements that one can, and stayibhav, combined together properly give the experience of rasa. Real briefly, the stayibhav is a dominant emotion that corresponds with these experiences of rasananda in various relationships. That's neutrality, servitude, friendship, parental and conjugal love. Just like in, a, in an ocean, you have water and you have waves and you have wind and so many things. All of them are important, but without water, you don't have anything. So the stayibhav is the main thing. And then the stai bhav is augmented by vyabhichari bhavs, which means they're not stai, they're moving. Stai means it's permanent. Then there are vyabhichari or sanchari, same thing. They come and they go and augment that. So many, 32 kinds of vyabhicharis relevant to different stais. If the stai is for sakirasa, then certain vyabhicharis will interact with that. And then the vibhavs we've, we've discussed. Anubhav means outer movements. All the movements of all these Devotees in Vrindavan, for example, in Krishna Leela, when they tie their belt like this and put their hands on their hips and challenge Krishna, all these expressions, all the movements, the raining from the cloud, this, it's all anubhav. It's a whole realm of ecstasy. They correspond with the inner sentiment inside. They're actually separate from it also. In Kirtan Ras, this chanting, this dancing, that will be anubhav. The difference between anubhav and sattvikabhav is there can be some calculation. You can think... Let me raise my hands. And Satvika Bob, you can't think. Your hair stand up. Voice chokes up. Tears pour out. And different levels of all of this as described in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. But when we go then to the southern division, then he's described all the elemental constituents, given examples and so forth. And now he's describing... He ends that western division with the Staibhav description. Then he goes into the southern division with a description of these primary... Experiences of rasa, servitude, friendship, and so forth. Now, what we've said here is interesting as much as we don't want, we live in a pluralistic times, and there's a good reason for it, and it's certainly not a bad thing. At the same time, we were advocating exclusive devotion to Krishna, so we may meet someone who has another deity, Christ or Buddha, I've mentioned here, for example. Our way of thinking about it is, of course, that it's very objective. Buddha represented something and taught in a particular way. And if we study it, we see it. this is what he taught. Buddha means enlightened. Buddha. And he taught about the cessation of suffering. He taught about what causes it. Dukkha. Suffering is what the world's about. It's caused by Trishna. Trishna. Thirst. The means to remove that thirst is to uh, give up desire. And there's a process. 
to do that hateful process. These are the noble truths of the Buddha. We don't want to take anything away from the Buddha. In fact, in our tradition, Buddha is considered an incarnation of Krishna. So we, we, he represents a particular aspect of divinity. And I think it's fairly objective. Christ taught sacrifice, love th- through sacrifice. Krishna is God in love. So there are some differences. God in love and teaching not self-sacrifice, but beyond that self-forgetfulness. In other words, in self-sacrifice, there's some calculation. Put me on the cross. Go ahead. Use the Christian Christ example. In self-forgetfulness, there's no thinking about it. It's your very life. A person is... Sometimes people do extraordinary things. Someone, an ordinary man, is walking down the street, and there's a fire in a house, and a girl's inside screaming, and he just runs in. He doesn't even... And you ask him afterwards... The newspapers get around him because he saved her. And what were you thinking when you went in there? And he says, I don't know, I, I just went in. Or someone in the war does something heroic and they get a medal pinned on their chest and uh, they forgot themselves, really. But the beauty in forgetting oneself is that you come in touch with a bigger sense of self. You're forgetting the small self. And this is, of course, there in self-sacrifice as well. But in the Gaudi Vaishnavism, we teach an ideal of really self-forgetfulness. That is gopis' love. They just didn't think about it. It's their life. They are so in love with Krishna. Their love is so absolute, so unconditional. It's a popular phrase, unconditional love. They got it. So Krishna is that aspect of divinity that represents this, that calls for this, that advocates this. Now, you can choose whether it's highest or lowest or where it is. That's up to you. We think we have a good reason to say it's, it's the highest ideal, objectively. But we honor the different traditions for what they are, what they represent. Here's the heart of divinity. Here's God in love. Krishna has come to earth, fallen in love. It's a very wonderful idea. It said that human society facilitates the love of divinity more than anywhere else. As I said before, we humans are different not just because we can reason, but because we can love. That is the teaching of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And Krishna comes to show us our potential for that, to facilitate it, drawing out that potential for love that's there when a soul reaches human consciousness. This juncture, it's oxymoron, really. It's an, it would be otherwise. Divine humanism, this is what Krishna consciousness is about, in a sense. Therefore, that Nadalila is said to be more sweet than the Devalila. Devalila means Golok and Gokula on earth. This manifestation on earth is more attractive. It's like I've said before, on location, filmed on location. If you do the film in the studio, it's one thing. If you actually go to the place, then it has added elements. Therefore, things in Gokul come out that are only in the air in Golok. 